Hi everyone, I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor here at Wired and you're listening to The Gadget Lab, a podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I am joined as always by co-host Lauren Good, senior writer at Wired. Hello. And Ariel Pardes, senior associate editor at Wired. Hello. Later on, we'll be running an interview that Ariel taped in Toronto. Did I say that correctly? Toronto. That's uh, that's correct. You do not pronounce the second T. That's so prissy. Toronto. All of the things that you learned at Collision Conference this week, and we're very glad you're back and could join us today. But you spoke with David Un, I think I'm saying that correctly, who heads up Samsung's innovation arm. And I have to say, the interview was really alarming. <laughs> that's right. The fire alarm went off about halfway through our conversation. Uh, Lauren made a pun. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was pretty awkward, but David was great to speak with. His job is basically to look ahead into the future and forecast the kinds of consumer tech trends that will affect Samsung and many other big companies down the line, and then invest and encourage companies that are building out those trends to work with Samsung. So we talked a lot about what's ahead for us in tech, um, how to drive innovation when you work for a super huge company, um, and what he's sort of excited about in this moment. Very did he, cool. Did he tip his hand and tell you like the next four things that Samsung's going to come out with over the next 10, 10 months? Uh, no. No, he didn't? I just set the bell off, which is ironic because we're talking about interviews being interrupted. Let's continue, shall we? Ariel did say, by the way, you're going to hear this later and, and you will hear an edit at some point throughout the interview where the alarm started to go off during your interview. Just know that it happened and Ariel carried herself with amazing grace on stage. It was pretty awkward, though, I will say, and we'll, we'll spare you the, uh, the full blare when you listen to the recording. Well, uh, before we get to your interview with David, we should talk about uh, the news that's happening this week, shall we? That sounds great. Okay. Uh, I'll go first. So last week, the U.S. government took two actions that ban U.S. companies from doing business with the Chinese electronics giant Huawei. This ban has grown out of the Trump administration's trade war it's currently waging with China and the administration's long-running mistrust of Huawei. Uh, the U.S. has, for at least a dozen or so years, suspected that Huawei is possibly stealing intellectual property from U.S. companies and could be secretly spying on us. So now this week, the impact of that ban continues to be felt. More and more companies are pledging to stop selling technology and providing software to Huawei. Google, Qualcomm, Broadcom, Intel, and now Arm have said that they are going to freeze Huawei out. Uh, I should note that Arm is technically a Japanese company. They're owned by SoftBank and they're based in the UK, but uh, it makes chips, uh, chips for uh, low powered embedded computing. And its chips have components from the US and they license patents from US companies. So it's going to obey the ban just to be safe. And it's also important to note that because Arm is doing that and saying, we license patents from US companies so we can't sell to Huawei, that means there will probably be other companies that are based overseas that do business with Huawei that have to stop doing that because their technology also licenses things that were developed in the US. Um, so the ban is probably going to continue having a big negative impact on Huawei as more companies jump ship. And it's also really significant for our industry because Huawei is absolutely huge. It's the second biggest smartphone maker in the world after Samsung, ahead of Apple. And 
It's the world's largest supplier of mobile networking equipment. Mm. That's right. I think in the U.S. there's not a ton of awareness around Huawei. The carriers don't support Huawei here. So in a lot of ways, there aren't incentives created for people to even buy or use a Huawei phone or one of its subsidiaries like Honor. And I also think people, you know, maybe who aren't following this as closely as we are, may not realize how big of a mobile networking equipment supplier companies like Huawei and ZTE. Also, another company out of China that has been the subject of some of the U.S. government scrutiny. Um, how important what they do is to infrastructure around the world. But of course, in parts of Asia and in Europe, by the way, these companies do have presence and the span is really significant. It's also significant, especially the Google one. We've talked a lot about this this week and some of our colleagues, including Clint Finley and Brian Barrett have been covering this story so far uh, for Wired. So go check out their stories and we'll put them in the show notes. But um, yeah, I mean, the Google ban means that essentially all new Huawei phones that are rolled out, I think after a certain date, I guess a certain date in May at this point, mm-hmm. um, would not be able to run what's known as Google Mobile Services, which are sort of this top layer on top of Android that exists. So Android exists as um, ASOP, the Android Open Source, AOSP, Android Open Source Project. <laughs> but then there's this bifurcation where there's like this really optimized version of Android that has Google Play services on top of it. And that's what Huawei will no longer have access to. Yeah, And that's gonna be pretty significant for the smartphone experience unless Huawei comes up with their own mobile operating system to build on top of a forked version of Android. Yeah. And, you know, they'd basically be on their own if they were doing that. They would have to build a team in China and build something that just works on their phones. And, you know, other companies have done this before, like um, Samsung with Tizen mm-hmm. is, you know, reliant on other systems, but it is largely its own system, um, largely abandoned because of lack of developer support. So that's something that, like, if China wants to wall itself off and build all of its own software in-house, it can. It's a superpower. It can totally do that. But it's going to be really weird. Not only for the people on the inside, but for the people on the outside who have to interoperate with all the stuff that's in China. Yep. And you bring up a great point about developers. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's definitely one of the biggest challenges is convincing third party developers to build for whatever your newfound mobile operating system may be, Um, especially when there are two very big, well-established mobile operating systems in the world already. Yeah. Well, you know, probably one place where this isn't going to have a huge impact is on 5G rollout, uh, at least in this country. Because, like, as you were saying, there's not a lot of mobile infrastructure here that's built by Huawei. Um, The United States has been very suspicious of the company for a long time. So, you know, they've sort of talked to the mobile carriers here, uh, like Verizon, for example. Building out in the United States didn't buy any Huawei stuff. They, They decided to go with other providers. So... Now that they're looking at upgrading to 5G networks, you know, Huawei makes a lot of 5G stuff, but we don't really have a lot of it here anyway. Um, it is going to, I mean, if you go to Europe, like you were saying, you go to Europe and Asia, there's Huawei absolutely everywhere. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if the other countries that are our allies will start to play along. Like Huawei got in trouble mm-hmm. in Poland, mm-hmm. they got in trouble in the UK, so we'll see. Now this ban only affects Huawei, right? This doesn't affect other Chinese Smartphone manufacturers. Right. Basically, the United States keeps this list of companies that are that Chinese companies that are bad, that, that they think are bad. And they added Huawei to this list last week. So now we're seeing that trickle down. So it could be that, you know, the other big companies like ZTE mm-hmm. or or Xiaomi, as the Trump administration's trade war with China continues, they could just add more companies to that list. Mm-hmm. Right. 
But ZTE has been on this so-called list before. (laughs) And we should also note, too, that um, right after the news broke over the weekend, like late Sunday into early Monday, the government did issue a temporary general license that would allow Google uh, to work with Huawei for 90 days to develop software updates and security patches for the existing handset models. But after that 90 days, it's really anybody's guess at this point what's going to happen. Well, in other news... um, Amazon is reportedly developing a piece of personal technology that would sit on your wrist like a wearable and detect your emotions through your voice. Uh, This is according to a report from Bloomberg, which hasn't yet determined how far along the project is or whether it will become a real consumer product. Um, But the idea isn't actually new. It's not even new to Amazon. Um, Last year, Wired senior writer Tom Simonite wrote about how Amazon was trying to teach Alexa some basic skills in emotional awareness, basically training the voice assistant to understand when you're frustrated or annoyed or shouting at it because it hasn't understood your query and keeps spitting back nonsense. Um, And two years ago, Amazon filed a patent for a system of voice software that could determine if a user is feeling emotions like joy or anger or sorrow or sadness, fear, disgust, boredom, stress, the list goes on and on. Mm. So it's entirely conceivable that the company is funneling this into some kind of single wearable device that encases its technology and maybe feeds back um, into the Alexa system or other Amazon products. Um, I guess the, the question I'm interested in is like, why would Amazon or any other big tech company for that matter want to do this? And I think there are a lot of good answers. One is that it would give Alexa a big edge if it was the sort of emotionally aware voice assistant that knew when you were getting a little pissed off and could calm you down or respond in a way that um, felt satisfying and not just like you were talking to a machine. Yeah, it makes it more human. Um, But it does feel a little weird, right? Oh, it's definitely going to be like, Alexa, order me boxed wine. You've already placed that order. Amazon placed it for you. It knew you were sad. I mean, that's totally what's going to happen. You know, Lauren, you should watch Fleabag now. You could really use, I don't know. This is like, there has to be. You should watch Fleabag. I would like to watch that the moment I I get an Amazon Prime property. Right, right. I just feel like there's got to be a commerce angle in the long run, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. by the way, I'm not, I really don't drink boxed wine. I mean, maybe sometimes. Oh, I don't boxed know. wine is the best. Boxed yeah, wine's boxed getting wine's better. Great. It's getting better. Yes, it's been good for a long time. But I think what it is now <laughs> is that you're just getting less discerning. <laughs> <laughs> and Amazon knows that. So I have I've a question, right? You both know people who um, are like anxious talkers. People who, whenever you talk to them, they just sound strained. And it's not necessarily that they're strained. That's just the way their voice is, right? Mm -hmm. There's also people that you know who smiles all the time, right? They smize? Yeah. Is that smiling with your eyes? Yeah. Have you never seen America's Next Top Model? No. Yeah, it's a term. It's like you smile with your eyes without smiling. And you could do that with your voice. So you can actually, I don't know, was there a term for that? It's just, I just always called it voice smizing. Mm. I guess it's like sing-songing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's people who talk like that all the time. Mm -hmm. So are those people going to generate like garbage results because they're not actually anxious or they're not actually happy? Their Their voice just sounds like that? I would imagine a wearable would have something like galvanic skin response sensors and that those sensors would be able to better infer how stressed you are as opposed to... Uh, perhaps your facial expressions or the way you have made a voice sound during a query. 
Just maybe. I don't know. I would love to see research on that. That's right. The big advantage of doing it as a wearable is that you could potentially combine sensor data with microphone data with whatever else Amazon is using. Again, like we don't know the details on on sort of what they're building or if they're even intending to, to put this out in the market. But I do think it's a space to watch, um, especially as this sort of emotional AI space becomes more and more crowded. I mm-hmm. think it will be important to watch like what people think we need and how they think it'll be used. And also, as, as you point out, Mike, like how those algorithms are trained. Um, we know that algorithms are full of bias and they do not work universally for everyone. And so if, if you're talking about something as sensitive as emotion um, and how a machine should respond to something like human emotion, we have to make sure those algorithms work for everyone. Yeah. The future of computing is ambient and anticipatory. And emotional. Now, what if Amazon is developing this not for consumers, but for its fulfillment center workers? Oh, my God. That would be interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Ooh, that's dystopian. People use that word a lot, but that really is. We're not too far from that. Yeah. We need labor laws now. Mm -hmm. You can't make me wear a wearable that detects my emotions and reads my blood pressure. I would like one that detects your emotions, Mike, because then Lauren and I could know, like, hey, like, don't. Don't try and, uh, you know, bug Mike for, like, edits on something. Or, like, now's a good time to say, like, hey, I'm not going to make my deadline because he's in a good mood. Or maybe, like, this is a good time to, like, bring Mike a cookie. So what you're saying is that I'm moody and I can be manipulated by food. Yes, that's correct. Okay. You've been reading reading my emails. (laughs) Maybe Amazon could help us capitalize on this. For your sake, I hope that works out. Well, you might have better luck using the broken keyboard excuse for missing a deadline. But is this a good segue to the next news segment? Uh, I think it's a little too late <laughs> to come up with a good segue to the next news segment. I would say uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't great. Okay. All right. I'm sorry, guys. I'm failing today. My Stroll dad it. jokes. Okay. But Apple earlier this week announced new MacBook Pros. This was almost a year after the last MacBook Pro update. Surprise, surprise. Uh, But the really big surprise of the the announcement around MacBook Pros this week was that the MacBook Pros have new keyboards, sort of, kind of. These new MacBook Pros, uh, the keyboards within them, they still have the third generation butterfly switch design, which has been problematic in the recent past, if you're not aware. But now Apple says that they have a new material within that design that the company claims should help fix the problems with its keyboards. They declined to say what this material was. I'm sure at some point there will be teardowns and we will find out more. And you might also remember that when the MacBook Pros were updated last year, there was the silicone membrane, excuse me, silicone Silicone, membrane that was inserted under the keys because that was, well, it was largely perceived as an effort by Apple to help keep debris and dust out of the keys and that that was what was causing the issues. So this is some other sort of new material that's existing within the keys now that is supposed to improve this, but it's still the old keyboard design. Uh, the company also extended its repair program. So last year, after being prompted by some what the company claims is still scattered complaints, <laughs> the vast majority of people are super happy with their MacBooks. All the people who had problems are just weirdly concentrated on Twitter. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And all the people who have been like leaving E's and R's and P's out of all of their you know tweets and Facebook posts. Who knows about all those people? But anyway, um, so you might remember that last year Apple did... Uh, announced some type of repair program that was specifically for people who um, had newer MacBooks, were having trouble with the keys, but were out of warranty. And now they've just 
completely opened up the repair program and are saying it's for anybody within warranty, outside of warranty. It basically goes back on some models to as far as 2015 MacBooks. It's going to include MacBook Airs if your Air happens to be having keyboard problems. And they claim that their um, processing times for fixing the keyboards is also faster, although they declined to share how they've made these processes uh, faster. I think it's better late than never. And the fact that they're allowing people who have these broken keyboards to get them repaired, even if they're out of warranty, is, is a good move. It's good luck. Restores some faith in the Apple ecosystem from people who have been you know, typing nonsense for years now. Mm-hmm. The, the new keyboards, I know they haven't said um, much about the design, but they are still using the butterfly mechanism, right? That's correct. Still the butterfly mechanism, still third generation butterfly 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 switch but with a new material inside of it which i like to imagine is tiny little adorable micro scissors that just exist under the butterfly and make it more like a scissor switch i think it's ice cream oh <laughs> the secret yeah. material is ice it's it's a custard based ice cream mm-hmm. super premium 24 mm-hmm. percent, and it just keeps Milk those fat. keys butterfly. like real real creamy mm-hmm. they never get yeah. stuck and they're going to do this really gorgeous ad for MacBook, and it's going to be, your love is better than ice cream. Oh, no. Better than... I'm going to stop singing Sarah, now. Sarah McLaughlin. Oh, yeah, that's right. Sarah McLaughlin. Well, I just, I just don't know how... Uh, people, people are probably just going to forget all about this in a year. Like, if it's successful, if they actually do, you know, make the keyboards better and they stop having problems and people stop having to send them in to get fixed all the time, then it's it's just going to blow over, which is kind of weird when you consider like how big of a company Apple is and how colossal of a screw up this was. The fact that it's most likely just going to be forgotten about. I And I'm saying forgotten about, that's probably an exaggeration. But there are a lot of people who love Apple unconditionally, even with this. Well, anecdotally too, the retail process has not been great. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I, I had to take a MacBook in for keyboard repair issues, which um, the repair tech said was actually a liquid issue. It was not the keys; it was liquid. Anyway, so they get, they accused you of spilling something on your keyboard. Yes, yeah. I am. I maybe I did at some point. I don't know. Uh-huh. So that's they've just they've incepted that into your brain now, <laughs> right? This was a I think this was a 2013 model of MacBook. MacBook Pro, I've always gotten pros. Uh, and that took like, you know, days to fix. And it's like when you're without your MacBook for that long, it's like, oh gosh. And the whole process was just onerous and it was expensive. And now I'm supposed to be bringing in my current MacBook for something not related to the keyboard. And I just keep putting it off because I literally just don't want to deal with the store. Yeah. I just don't. I've, I went through a couple summers ago with a broken Apple Watch. That was a pain. I'm like, I just I don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. I don't. Well, big company. It's hard to keep customers satisfied. Yeah. We, <laughs> they're doing their best, people. <laughs> I'm glad you're here to defend this multinational, multi-billion corporation. Yeah. Defender a- of Apple apologies. Giant companies. Thanks so yeah. much. Number one. No, I, I, yeah. Well, let's move on to another giant smartphone maker, <laughs> shall we? Absolutely. So, Ariel, you were at, tell us what conference you were at. I was at Collision, which is a huge tech conference in Toronto. This is the first year it's been in Toronto. It was in New Orleans in previous years. Um, But there were something like 25,000 people there. And there's a huge presence from startups. There's a huge presence from major tech companies, um, some celebrities, some politicians, um, and people like myself who are interested in seeing where it all intersects. And you hung out with Joseph, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. 
I did hang out with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I understand that his friends call him Joe. That's correct. If you really <laughs> knew him, you would call him Joe. <laughs> but uh, we're not here to talk about Joe. Um, let's, uh, let's hear this conversation with David Unn from Samsung. David, thank you so much for being here. Good to be here, thanks. I want to talk today about innovation. I want to talk about the trends in technology that are driving innovation. And I want to talk about how a company with the size and scale of Samsung can compete with the agility and speed of a startup in trying to stay innovative. But first, uh, David, let's hear a little bit about you, as you have a very interesting vantage point when it comes to innovating. You are the president of Samsung Next. You are the chief innovation officer at Samsung. And I think many of us know Samsung because we have Samsung devices in our homes and in our pockets. Um, but your job is a little different. So tell us a little bit about what you do and how you approach innovation in your role. Sure. So. Uh, one of the, and I've, I've, I've talked about this before, but one of the paradoxes of corporate life is that even for the most successful companies, you always have to think about moving forward, thinking about what's next, what are the growth areas, and uh, if you don't innovate and move forward, if you're standing still, you, you will fail. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the, the dilemma is that, especially with the bigger companies, the successful companies, oftentimes what has made you successful, what is at the core of what you do can become so big it can become a blind spot to what's around the corner, where the growth opportunities are. And um, this is where Samsung Next comes in. Um, we are an innovation group within Samsung, and we are purposely built uh, to focus on innovations in software and services that could complement Samsung's historic expertise in hardware and consumer electronics. And we do this by having an exclusive focus on startups and entrepreneurs, which is why we're here. Uh, and in all under one roof, we have a venture capital team, we have a business development and partnerships team, we have an M&A team, and we have a product development team, all aligned around one goal, and that is really understanding and working with the best entrepreneurs out there to identify new services that could benefit Samsung and vice versa. Um, and uh, that's what we do at Samsung Next, uh, and that's why we're here, as I, as I said. Cool. I want to talk about some of the things that you're interested in when you are looking ahead in the future and thinking about uh, trends that will benefit Samsung. And I want to start with one that I think everyone in the room is very familiar with, um, which is artificial intelligence. Obviously, this is something that's woven through many of the products that Samsung is producing, and Samsung has invested quite heavily in, in AI. I know you've earmarked uh, $22 billion over the next few years years toward uh, edge technologies like AI. Yeah. Tell us about why that's so important to you at Samsung and what you're investing in specifically. Yeah, so I think we've stated publicly we're going to invest $22 billion over the next three years in, in 5G and AI. And um, many people kind of know this, but they don't. But we sell over 500 million displays a year. And our goal is to have every single one of those displays with some form of intelligence in them. 
Uh, now, it's still early days in AI and, and development, and much of what we've seen in AI is very much focused, as many of you in the audience may know, on machine learning. Mm. Um, but there are many different approaches to AI, and while machine learning is uh, fantastic and, and has created a lot of great outputs and benefits so far, uh, these different approaches we think are, are, are very promising. And so, um, uh, uh, a few years ago, we launched, in fact, last year, we launched a, a fund just focused on early stage AI startups called the Q Fund, uh, with the idea of, uh, of opening up and interacting with different approaches to AI, uh, different startups who are trying to address uh, different issues and problems uh, along the whole value chain, uh, you know, all, all the way from sort of deep, deep uh, data analysis and, and gathering to tools for developers to applications. What's an example of something that was funded with the Q Fund? Uh, so uh, there's there's many examples, but uh, one one example uh, that we have is a company called Missing Link. Uh, it's, it's based in Israel and, and San Francisco, and uh, what they are doing is providing tools for developers to create more efficiency in the way uh, they harness and work with AI data. And so a lot of people don't know this if you don't work in it, but uh, when you take something like machine learning, it really is scaling and getting your arms around huge volumes of data, mm. uh, and that can be a very cumbersome, sometimes inefficient process. So we are providing tools and approaches that make it much more efficient and easier. Let's talk about some consumer trends. Uh, since a lot of what you do is, is sort of gazing out into the future and sort of predicting what people will be doing with technology three, five, 10, 15 years down the road, what is exciting you right now when you think about the future for consumers? Yeah, so in my role as a chief innovation officer, what uh, I and my team try to do is identify long-term consumer and tech trends mm -hmm. that are gonna affect people and businesses globally. And um, a lot of times people focus on what I would call like features or kind of neat functionality and technology, which is great. Uh, but what we've been doing more recently is, is going a little bit deeper on the fundamentals of how people are seeing the world and, and behaving. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the... Um, the things that we're observing I call experiences over things. And essentially what is happening, especially with younger consumers around the world, and not just in the US or North America, Canada, et cetera, around the world, is that younger consumers are valuing experiences over things. And by experiences, I mean authentic social experiences rather than purchasing you know, transactional items. Mm. It doesn't mean that they won't buy things, but the things are a means to a greater end. And in fact, if you look at the data, there's four times more spending in things. When you do the research, uh, something like close to 80% of all millennials uh, are predicting that they will spend more money on things, um, on doing things rather than buying things. And you look no further than, you know, whether they're live events or going out to eat or gathering together with friends, you know, what you would call these Instagrammable moments. Um, they're Instagrammable not uh, because they're just interesting, they're interesting because they're inherently social and more compelling. 
And what our research indicates is that when you have these kind of memories and these experiences, when you look back, they're more apt to have positive associations. Um, it's more closely linked to people's sense of happiness, of satisfaction. And so, so why is that important? Well, whether you're selling a car or selling luxury goods or selling TVs or services of any sort, the idea that of pushing the thing versus pushing what can be enabled by the thing, the experiences, is really important. And as we internalize that, you know, it makes us think about how the physical and the digital worlds are coming together, combined with the focus on experiences, and not surprisingly, you're seeing these huge trends, these activities and services that are really popping. Um, so for example, the idea of owning things is receding and having access to things to have the experience is more prominent. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to buy the music, you don't have to buy the video content. You can have a subscription right. to a Spotify or a Netflix, right? You don't have to buy a car necessarily if you can get access to it through an Uber or Lyft. Even clothing, right? So uh, we have a, a startup uh, investment in Germany called Grover, and what they essentially do is they turn every transaction into something that could be subscriptionizable. So you could effectively have access to something without necessarily buying it. And obviously, for consumer electronics, it's very big. But there, there are scenarios where essentially, if you want to stay mobile and stay light, you you don't have to buy the apartment you live in and the bed, the table, the utensils, everything that you have could be more of an access mm. uh, to it through subscription. So when we think about this and it's happening globally, it really thinks, it makes us think about, well, if you are in the startup space and you know that consumers are headed and developing that way, right. um, not, only how, not only are there questions about product development, but marketing and branding and the way you communicate who you are and what you do. Yeah, I want to return really briefly to your idea of experiences over things, because I think this is so interesting and you can see it happening uh, industry-wide. Yeah. Samsung is obviously a company that has a big business in selling hardware. You sell TVs and phones and appliances. Um, so if the trend is that people are investing less in these physical things and more in what you can do on them, you have a big incentive to find and nurture these services that people are excited about. Um, what are some examples of the things that you're excited about when you think about people investing in those experiences? Yeah, so, um, well the good news is that for one to have great experiences, things are important. Um, and uh, with, this, with this combination of the physical and the digital, um, you know, we, we look at the house and we think there are amazing transformations that are already uh, beginning to happen that will, will continue. So one example is the kitchen, right? Um, if you look at the kitchen itself and you look at around, uh, look around at your appliances, for the most part, there haven't been huge tectonic shifts in innovation. Um, but when you look at the behaviors and the way people spend their time and, and, their, and create experiences, you know, a kitchen used to be where you cooked, a dining room is where you would eat, and a living room is where you would hang out. Mm -hmm. And today, for many people, it's all kind of come together mm. in the kitchen. Mm. Uh, I mean, how many of you all have breakfast nooks or uh, kitchen islands in your homes? Right? 
Uh, how many of you, when you have friends over, spend a large or disproportionate amount of time in the kitchen? And so as we think about the kitchen, we think about having experiences and enabling those experiences. Uh, we just acquired a company uh, based in London called Whisk. And they're essentially a food slash kitchen platform where they allow consumers to find online recipes, so to be inspired to, dis to discover, to go all the way to executing restaurant quality meals. Mm -hmm. So they have relationships with publishers and people who own uh, uh, recipes to people who have uh, websites and apps that consumers use to retail so you can uh, easily buy the ingredients of things to preparation. And you're seeing now tremendous innovations even in appliances. You know, so you can easily cook really delicious quality meals and have great experiences around them. So we think you know, what might have been even overlooked before, uh, like the kitchen, is a huge opportunity for entrepreneurs and hardware, software, and services to really speak to consumers and, and build very promising businesses. Absolutely. So this example you just gave, Whisk, this is an acquisition. That's right. Um, so you do acquisitions, you also do early stage investments. That's right. Um, Tell us a little bit about how these companies feed back into the Samsung ecosystem. Obviously, you're looking at things that will enhance the experience of using Samsung products, but sort of what does that mean when you acquire or invest in one of these smaller startups that's doing something interesting? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the big insights or lessons learned, I think, of us and, and perhaps other, other companies is that big companies do things a certain way that, that have helped them become successful. And there are approaches and processes and cultures that form. And oftentimes they're very different from startups. Mm -hmm. right? So uh, I spent the earlier years of my career in media, and now I work for a large, let's say, hardware consumer electronics company. And in those industries, uh, when you offer a product up, you want it to be as perfect as possible. Mm -hmm. Because once you broadcast the show or you know, put the refrigerator in retail uh, stores, it, you can't change it. It's got to be as perfect as it can be. Of course, on software, you have almost the opposite mentality, right? You launch early and you iterate. And oftentimes, you use your users you, you leverage their expertise and their feedback to identify bugs and fixes to improve your product. So given that the cultures and approaches are so different, what we try to do when we uh, make an acquisition is think beforehand, even as we're doing due diligence of what the what we call the PMI looks like, the post-merger integration like plan. What happens after the acquisition? If you consider the acquisition day one, but what happens on day two? And for those of you who are entrepreneurs and, and are, are in startups, that's a really important question. Uh, and so what we, what we want to do is try to preserve those things that made the startup so attractive in the first place. The way they work, the culture, the people, and, and we, we don't want to kind of mess with the magic in a way, but we also want them to uh, learn new things and have access uh, to have uh, integration to the scale and the resources of the large company, which is one of the reasons why they wanted to get together. So striking that balance is not always easy to do, but it's essential. Mm. And for those of you who are in startups, you know, when you think about uh, the huge goal of having an exit, and, and maybe that includes an acquisition, 
you know, one of the things I would strongly recommend is you really look at acquisition. I mean, sure, it's a great success event, a reason for celebration, but in a way, a form of business development, a way of getting to the next stage of fulfilling even bigger goals for why you created the startup or joined the startup in the first place. And I think if you partner and get acquired by the right type of company, um, they can provide you with tremendous leverage, mm -hmm. and, and that's what we try to do. We just have time for, for one last question here, um, but I want to make it one that I think the audience will relate to. You interface with so many startups, so many young companies, uh, so many people who are trying to change the world. What is the piece of advice that you would give to entrepreneurs in the audience? Uh, well, I have two pieces of, of ad advice. The first is, um, remind, I was reminded of just with this fire, fire drill, uh, but sometimes things don't happen like you planned, right? <laughs> sometimes the unexpected happens and uh, you just have to roll with it. And a, a lot of being successful as an entrepreneur is rolling with those changes and having the kind of resilience to, to overcome. Uh, but the, the one piece of advice I would share with, with you all is that um, you know, working in a startup and being an entrepreneur can be so all-consuming. We know this. And because you're thinking about what you're doing in your product and the, and the things that you're trying to accomplish, uh, what I would suggest to you is when you interact with other folks, and it could be uh, a potential customer, when you th or it could be thinking about your ultimate user, it could be a, a potential investor, uh, it could be someone who's a journalist, um, just remind yourself to... <laughs> to roll with it. Just remind yourself <laughs> to really put yourself in, in, in the shoes of the other person. So rather than thinking about all the messages and all the things that you want to tick off to, to give out, really thinking, think about what they need to hear, what, mm. what they want to hear um, as well. So it's really being, in that sense, user-centric mm. in, in every interaction. Because I, I find sometimes, and this happens in, in you'll, you'll find this even in partnership discussions, you hear a lot from them what they want from you but not necessarily what they can give to you, mm. right? So it seems common sense, but um, you'd be surprised at how often people forget that and, and that you understand why, because you've been so focused on getting your message out or making sure people understand the beauty of what you're trying to do that you, you, you miss that. And, and this goes uh, for recruiting people. It goes to having uh, conversations at a tailgate or a, or a barbecue and, and someone asks you what you do, really trying to put yourself in that frame mind. So that's what I would say. Um, I heard this quote, and maybe this is a way we could end the quote. I, I heard this quote recently, and, and it really, I, I really like it, and uh, I don't know if you all have heard it, but it's about uh, what being an entrepreneur is. Being a successful entrepreneur means doing today what others will not do, so tomorrow you can do what others cannot do. Mm. And uh, I really like that. So I wish you all the best. Thank you so Thanks, much, Ariel. David. Thank you. Better get off the stage before we set off any more alarms. So that was a great interview. And like I said earlier, you did a great job with that, um, handling that interruption. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Very alarming. It was a time. (laughs) Did you get the chance to ask him at all about the Galaxy Fold? I did ask about the Galaxy Fold in one of our pre-calls ahead of collision. And the answer was what you would expect, which is that uh, the Fold is very, very, very far from what David works on. Um, And I think like this is kind of Samsung's way of saying like no comment, but in fairness, like David Un doesn't do anything relating to developing hardware or developing software, really. Like his job is almost to act in the capacity of a VC, looking at very small companies, giving them like very small um, seed stage investments, and then watching them grow and ultimately seeing how they fold back into the <laughs> fold back into the Samsung ecosystem. So. Um, yeah, like the line there was sort of like he has nothing to do with it. He doesn't know what's going on with it, and he has nothing to say about it. Um, which, womp womp. I imagine in some way he's still looking at innovative startups to potentially invest in or acquire who are doing interesting things around display technology. Right. So like, I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. I would think so. Uh, and different processes around hardware. Uh, so. Another thing that struck me about that interview was how much he talked about how younger consumers are into experiences versus things, which That's was right. in the first half uh, before the interruption. And I was wondering if he mentioned either offstage or in earlier conversations who else he thinks is doing a good job in the tech space right now of investing in experiences rather than physical products? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think he really admires companies like Peloton, which are sort of pioneering this new model where you're um, you're maybe buying a piece of hardware, like a very expensive exercise bike or treadmill or something, but you're also getting people to buy into this like experience ecosystem, right? Like people like Peloton, not because you get a cool stationary bike, but because you get instructors who are like accessible all the time. So I think um, we didn't speak a lot about like what other big companies are doing or VCs are doing in terms of investment, but he did speak um, a lot in some of our pre-calls about like companies like that that are sort of pioneering this new model that he thinks is really interesting. And another thing that he he mentioned very, very briefly on stage, um, but we talked a lot about ahead of time was this uh, shift toward renting things or subscribing to things rather than owning them. And he seems really impressed and interested in companies that are like the rent the runway type, which Lauren, I know you've written about um, very, very beautifully um, as this sort of brave new world of, you know, not needing to own anything. And so, so David Un, I know is, is really interested in startups that are moving in that space as well, where it's like, in the future, like maybe we'll rent all of our furniture, maybe we'll rent our laptops, like maybe we'll rent the glasses we wear, like maybe maybe the era of ownership is over, um, which is is something that you're seeing in these like you know startups that have gotten really big, like Rent the Runway. Mm-hmm. So Samsung will still sell appliances and sell consumer electronics, but they might be through this layer of subscription or rentals and things like that. That's exactly right. And yeah. how do you how do you you know, get people to buy things <laughs> um, in the Samsung hardware space, like while well, you sell them cool subscriptions that they can, you know, y- use with that hardware. That was a great interview. Yeah, it really was. Really was. Thank you for listening. It's like you guys were there with me, holding my hand through this uh, faux emergency. I would have gone, but they won't let me into Canada anymore. <laughs> Wait, what? What happened there? No, no, we're not going to talk about it. Well, why don't you um, give us a recommendation? 
If you're not going to give us a juicy story. Yes. Okay, recommendations? Oh, oh, my recommendation this week is one of my favorite podcasts, and I'm happy to actually have like a relevant, not like I need one, but I'm happy to have a relevant reason to, to recommend it this week. Uh, it's the New York Times Popcast. It's hosted every week-ish, every week by John Caramonica, who is a um, culture reporter. He writes for um, the music uh, arts and music section of the New York Times, and he writes for the style section of the New York Times. Uh, anyway, Kira Monica wants to know all about AirPods, so he quizzes a bunch of people in the technology reporting world about AirPods, and the whole show is about the AirPods. So it's about, you know, do you wear them? Do you buy them? Are they too expensive? How do they sound? Um, what is your experience like with them? Does, Some, he, does he ask, do you feel like a ding-dong wearing them? Yes, they a talk about the social dong. implications. So not only of like, you are the person that has them in your ears and you're walking around and other people are looking at you and what their perceptions of you are, but also how does it affect your social interactions when you're like at the grocery store? Really great. So if you're if you're an AirPods hater or if you're an AirPods lover, uh, it's a great episode. Also, I really like it because it has a lot of journalists on it. So you get to like hear journalists talking about their experience with AirPods and why they were drawn to them or repelled by them. Uh, so it's sort of like a window inside a newsroom, which is kind of cool. Um, also, one of the voices on the show this week is uh, Brian Chen, former co-worker here, former co-host on this very show, The Gadget Lab. And now he works in the New York Times where he writes um, the fix tech fix column, right, every week. How anyway. does he feel about AirPods? Uh, he has complicated feelings about them. Mm. Just like at every, like Amanda Hess is on the show. Mm. She has some complicated feelings about them. Uh, John Caramonica refuses to buy them. It's it's good. You got to listen to it. It's really good. I'm definitely going to listen to that. The podcast, New York Times podcast, all about AirPods this week. That's awesome. Give it a shot. Um, my recommendation is also something that goes in your ears. Uh, <laughs> oh, tell me more. Um, Q-tips? Uh, no, Mike, you're not supposed to put those in your ears. You're not? Yeah, you're supposed to just use the Q-tip to clean the outer ear, but never the inner ear. My yeah. my allergist once told me the smallest thing you should ever put in your ear is your elbow. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh boy. Uh, well, she might not like my recommendation then. Um, <laughs> I I have been traveling uh, this past week, and I'm traveling again this weekend. Um, and something that I always take when I'm traveling, but also now use constantly when I'm at home, uh, are earplugs. I have become an earplug obsessive, and I'll tell you why. First of all, when you're sleeping in a foreign environment, like a hotel room in a, in a city you don't know well, like there is nothing more disruptive to your experience traveling than, than not having a good night's sleep because mm -hmm. you're like awakened by street noise that's, you know, unconventional. Also, being on an airplane where like a baby is crying or like, for example, on my last flight, there was a guy in the row behind me who was watching a sports game with headphones on. I don't know what he was watching, but every few seconds he would shout like, 
Oh, they got it. Oh, did you? Oh, they missed it. And, like, had no, <laughs> no sense of being on an airplane surrounded by hundreds of people as he was shouting this. Was it the puppy bowl? Was he watching? The I don't puppy? know what he was watching, but having earplugs in these instances is is just tremendous. You will never regret having them. And I specifically like to use uh, wax or silicone earplugs, which are designed uh, often for swimmers, um, but can be used on land as well. They're much, much better than a foam earplug because the density blocks out so much more sound and then you can just kind of squish them to, to fit your exact ear shape. Um, so I really like Max earplugs. They make like all kinds of different earplugs, but they have a really nice set of, uh, of silicone earplugs that just squish into your ear like putty and block out the whole world around you and create a nice sensory deprivation mind space for you, whether you're on an airplane, in a hotel room, or just relaxing in your home. Max earplugs. Very cool. That's a great recommendation. I too. really like them. I, I have to say, um, uh, Jamie Lauren Keels wrote a great letter of recommendation for the New York Times Magazine on earplugs a couple years ago. Um, and she also recommended Max earplugs, though she likes the foam ones, which I think are inferior. But um, if you have a chance to read her essay, which is like now four years old, but has aged quite well, um, she likes to just wear them walking around New York City. Do you ever worry if you're wearing ear earplugs that you won't hear an intruder? Well, now she will. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Lauren, why would you plant that thought in my head? I don't know. It's just that's I don't know. I shouldn't. I, I, I should not have asked a leading question. <laughs> I think the likelihood that I'm awakened by something really insignificant is so much higher than the fact than the likelihood that I would not be awakened by an intruder. I think that, but that's I also don't really reason. think about home intruders all that often, and now I will for the rest of my no, days. No, so don't think about it. Don't think about it at all. I um I have been a longtime fan of Etty plugs, E T Y plugs. Uh, they're made by a company called Etymotic, which is like an American company. They make like high end headphones. They make these like little. I think they're like ten bucks or eight bucks, and they're um they're attenuators, so they don't block out all sound, but they block out high frequencies. Mm. And they bring the decibel level down. Mm. So like when I go to a concert and I'm in like the second row or whatever, I'll put those in and they don't sound like fantastic, but they sound miles better than the uh, than the foam ones, especially like in a loud, you know, if you if you go to the show to hear the music, they're great. Yeah. They're the next best thing to um, custom custom molded earplugs. I'm really learning so much from you guys right now. Yeah. And, And yeah. And, you know, again, like less than $10 and you can save your hearing and not be bothered by the guy behind you on the airplane watching sports. Christ, some people just have no <laughs> sense of decency in public places. I also live with snorers. And I say snorers plural because it's both my partner and my cat. Yeah, And it's Ooh. not an exaggeration. And sometimes I'm lying there and they're snoring at different cadences. <laughs> so one will be like, one's like a very loud human like... And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm awake. And then he settles down for a moment, and then the cat goes, and it's a little cat <laughs> snore. And I'm like, what the f? And it and it just goes back and forth. <laughs> and is, is it like that thing, like when you're sitting in your? Oh my god! When you're sitting in your car and it's raining, and there's like the windshield wipers are going, 
and there's like a beat playing on on this on the radio and they're like almost synced up and you sit there and you just like wait and anticipate that moment where they sync up perfectly for like mm. three or four seconds and then they go out of sync again. What you were describing sounds meditative. Mm-hmm. Is that what happens when you're it, laying in bed it, listening to your, the two sure. things inside you? But but that but str- it stresses me out not being able to sleep. So I think I need to invest in earplugs. I've yeah. just always thought you know. I want to be able to hear if things are going on outside. It like, doesn't have to be a home intrusion. It could be like an alarm. Like, it could be like oh, a fire alarm. You still hear your alarm. Like okay. I still, I still wake up with my phone alarm, and I, I always hear it. Okay. Yeah. This is good to know. Yeah, I wake up screaming every morning, so it's pretty easy for me to. <laughs> Blocks out sound, doesn't block out nightmares. That's right. <laughs> okay, what's your ear okay. recommendation? I had another one and then I just switched it. I listened to a great podcast recently. It was the Ezra Klein show, and this is from April 22nd, so it is more than a month old at this point, but it was titled Work as Identity, comma, Burnout as Lifestyle, and the guests were Anne Helen Peterson from BuzzFeed and Derek Thompson from The Atlantic, both who have written much talked about articles in recent months about burnout and workism, quote unquote workism. It's a very, very good discussion. And just when you think like they've kind of exhausted all of the possibilities of what they could, uh, you know, talk about when it comes to work and burnout and particularly millennials and their culture around work um, and expectations around U.S. workers relative to other countries, then they sort of get into the macro conversation about capitalism with a capital C and how capitalistic forces have created this environment in which we're currently living. They talk about student loans. It's Damn. really, it's really good. Uh, well, and and Helen Peterson has um, covered student loans and the student loan. I mean, you could probably call it a crisis at this point. Quite a bit for BuzzFeed, so that's something that uh, she's very knowledgeable on. So it's a really good conversation, and I highly recommend just going for a long, slow walk when you're not working and listening to it. Nice. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. That has nothing to do with things that go in your ears. Well, the, it's a podcast. No. It does okay. go in your ears. Oh, yeah. so it's the same. Okay, it's yeah. all about stuff that goes in your ears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and who is Ezra Klein? Ezra Klein is, you know, I don't know his official title at this point, if it's editor-in-chief or editor-at-large. I think he's editor-at-large uh-huh. of Vox.com. Uh-huh. But he is the founder of Vox.com. And he had been a policy reporter working at the Washington Post when he sort of pitched the idea of this explainer journalism site. And as I recall it, I don't have to look this up, but I think the Washington Post like rejected the idea. And so he's like, I'm going to go start my own thing. So we started that. So it's it's a part of Vox Media as a company, but it is Vox.com, the website. And this is his, uh, his podcast. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Kudos to him. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening, Ariel. Thank you for bringing that lovely interview back from the Great White North for us all to hear. My pleasure. I also brought you back maple cookies. I hope you saw. I did. Oh, I, I, I crushed two of them with great aplomb. Oh, don't you know? Early Earlier today, eh? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I used to live in Canada. You did? What yeah, part of Canada? Fun fact. Can't, can't talk about it. Can't talk about it. Legally, <laughs> is this why you can't go back? Legally prevented from talking about it. Uh, there is think, something Lauren, going on here. Tell people how to find you on Twitter. I am at Lauren Good with an E. Ariel. I am at Pardesoteric. I am at Snackfight. And you can talk to all of us on the Twitter feed for this show and for our channel on Wired at Gadget Lab. We will be back next week. Until then, oh Canada. Oh, Canada.